you're watching a video that's a supplement for a new certificate program in medical software and medical AI. Our guest today is Bradley Merrill Thompson. He's a partner at the law firm of Epson, Becker and Green. He does a lot of work in this area of medical devices, law, medical software and the rest. So Bradley, welcome. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your history in this area. And then I'll have some questions for you. Well, um, my history actually goes way back. I, I started um, doing medical device law uh, with FDA 35, 37 years ago. Um, and and it's changed a lot since then. Um, in the old days, I did a lot of laboratory tests and, and um, uh, physical medicine devices and all sorts of things. Um, but over the last 10 years, I've really been focused on software because I enjoy software, quite honestly. Um, so much so that when AI started to get really popular in medicine, which was a number of years ago, um, I went back to school, uh, I spent a couple of years getting a master's in, um, in data science. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the actual history of it goes back about 20 years. Um, and and uh, an awful lot of applications in radiology have used AI mm-hmm. um, uh, to detect uh, portions of images that are suspicious and any number of purposes. So um, I, I, I enjoyed that aspect. I started to focus more on that aspect. And the whole topic of clinical decision support um, really over the last 10 years, because I represented a, a coalition of companies, many of them small startups, uh, that really wanted to push into this area and the federal regulations were very unclear. So that sort of got me going and got me focused and and I've enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll get back to clinical decision support in a minute actually, but first, so let's just orient ourselves here and this is where we need some of your guidance. So not every piece of software gets used in a healthcare, in a healthcare setting. It's a medical device, it's not necessarily regulated by the FDA. There's all kinds of exemptions get made can you walk us through some of that? What are the things? So for example, if I look through that, things for administrative support, electronic health records, and clinical decision support at the end. Can you walk us a little bit? What's the rationale for saying, you know, we don't worry about these things? So um, fully transparent, um, I was involved with a group, uh, that clinical decision support group, that lobbied for legislation that was ultimately enacted in 2016, which you're which you're really quoting from or referencing anyway. Um, so I I had a hand in that for for good or for bad. Um, and you know when you're talking about a statute, um, Congress doesn't have to explain itself. They get to they get to just sort of say what the law is, and unless it's unconstitutional, that that's the law. So. You're sort of left to guess as to what was in their minds, collective minds, when they uh, passed it. But I would say the theme is um, a couplefold. Number one, they focus on risk. They focused on where there was software that seemed to have very little risk. And administrative software is a classic example um, because it was just viewed as doing things that really didn't directly impact uh, patient care. Wellness has a little bit different background to it because for a different coalition, the M Health Regulatory Coalition back oh, 15 years ago, um, I really worked with FDA and pushed them hard to adopt what is now referred to as the wellness guidance. And the wellness guidance is based partly on risk, but it's also based partly on the notion that when it comes to healthcare, we ought to be encouraging products that help people live a healthier life. 
And, um, you know, it, 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 we, we've come a long way in medicine to realize that, um, that when, you, when you have the social determinants of health, there's a lot of things that influence how healthy a person is. And medicine is only maybe a small portion of that. And so policymakers at FDA and in Congress decided that, um, that they wanted companies to develop software, but also other products that help people avoid diabetes, for example, that help them uh, have a good diet, exercise, uh, get good sleep, manage their stress, do all the things that really are, 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 have a dramatic impact on whether we're susceptible of developing um, diabetes, for, as an example, asthma, other things as well. So, so that's a policy initiative, you know, first at FDA and then Congress codified it to say, we need to, we need to take the regulatory burden off of these low risk products that have this important public health benefit of, of improving wellness. There's other things that Congress codified, for example, the medical device data system rule that FDA had developed, where FDA had said, you know, IT has come a long way just moving around medical device data from a pacemaker or whatever it might be is itself really low risk. It's very standardized, very protocol driven, and we FDA shouldn't be involved in regulating that. So, so first FDA deregulated it and then Congress adopted it in a statute. The CDS portion of that is also, you know, due specifically to the coalition that I was working with uh, advocating that, um, that, that doctors need more information, that more information is good, and software is a tremendous delivery mechanism for helping doctors get at their fingertips at the point of care more information to inform their decision making. They can't possibly read all of the medical literature um, as quickly as it comes out. They can't stay up to date on everything. And just cognitively, the load of everything that a physician needs to sort of know or understand is, is uh, overwhelming. And that CDS can play an important role, not to pick on doctors, but it's well established that medical errors, mental medical errors, cause a lot of mor morbidity and mortality and causes a lot of real harm. And so if we can, if we can reduce that, that we can reduce the mental errors through more software that, that helps uh, the physician think through um, either a diagnostic decision or a therapeutic decision, that it's a good thing and that regulation shouldn't uh, be used to uh, to stifle that sort of access. So all that stuff went into the bucket. Congress enacted that law in 2016. And so it's been on the books now ever since. And Congress, or excuse me, FDA has been trying to interpret it and uh, uh, with mixed success, I would say. So getting to the interpretation, there is the controversy about the guidance on clinical decision support that came out last year. It seems to be a lot tighter than perhaps it used to be before, or you felt that Congress intended. So let's if you can describe a little bit of what that guidance says and where you feel they've gone too far, perhaps, or where people in general feel they've gone too far. Right. So I've I've already confessed my <laughs> bias, as it were. Um, so you know, take my comments uh with that perspective. Um so the development of that CDS guidance, it went through two intermediate drafts before it got to that final. And the two intermediate drafts went in different directions, but they were relatively in harmony with the statute. 
um, they, they tried to implement what the statute um, wanted to accomplish, but they brought, for example, some international harmonization principles into them. Um, so FDA was trying to look at what other countries were doing and try and use some of the same language and some of the same principles. But generally, it was in line uh, with what the statute said. Then sort of out of the blue, in moving from the last draft to the final, the final was completely different from the draft, which called into procedural question whether people had a chance to really comment on the document since it's departed so radically from, from what FDA had, had put out there. So there was a procedural problem with what they did. And, and that's part of the objection is that they came up with this on their own without public input. But substantively, um, FDA seemed to reject the language of the statute and come up with its own approach. And you know it's basic administrative law that an agency can't do that. An agency is subservient to the Congress. They have to do what Congress authorizes them to do and they weren't here. And I'll give you some examples. So one of the things about CDS when it comes to machine learning in particular is the quality of the information on which um, a, a, a particular clinical decision support piece of software is based, whether it's programmed in uh, or whether it's uh, machine learned. Um, the information that goes into it. And FDA said that that has to be high quality in two dimensions. Number one, the types of information on which this is based have to be commonly accepted by physicians and used in, in frankly, in, in typical conversation between physicians on a given topic. Well, that kind of precludes any innovation because no longer can you look for other sources of information that might have relevant information embedded in them and use them, for example, in training an, an algorithm, training a model rather. Um, uh, and that's not in the statute. The statute just says it has to be based on information. It doesn't put any limitations on what that is. And secondly, it says that the information on which this is based has to be peer-reviewed literature or, or similar high quality um, scientific findings. Again, it's found nowhere in the statute. The statute just says it has to be based on information. There's no qualifiers associated with it. I get what FDA is trying to do in that they have appropriately the philosophy garbage in, garbage out. If, if bad information is put in, then the recommendations won't be, um, uh, won't be good. But, but the particular limitations that they put on it, things like peer-reviewed literature, exclude a whole range of information which is very relevant um, and, and which might be very helpful, but doesn't meet that standard and therefore can't be used as the basis for CDS software. So FDA has really gone out on a limb here and, and said, you know, never mind the statute, we have these quality requirements for the information on which CDS uh, can be based, um, and, and that's unlawful. In addition to that, um, the output, so you have those as the inputs, then the output is a recommendation. And FDA is saying that the word recommendation means that you cannot tell a physician what to do. And, and it's, I can't do it justice, it's twisted logic. It's not found in the statute. But this is their argument as best I can piece it together. They're saying the word recommendation means that the software cannot direct somebody what to do. That's not the common meaning of recommendation. That's found nowhere in the statute. It's not found in any of the discussion that led up to the, up to the legislation. What they want, what FDA wants is a list. Um, 
dear doctor, have you considered these 15 things? It might be these 15 things. I, I get why there's a benefit in some cases to doing that because that sort of thing makes the doctor think more expansively. Mm -hmm. It makes the doctor sort of puzzle over which of the 15 might be the right answer and it gets the doctor engaged. I, I understand that. But there are circumstances when there aren't 15 things, there aren't even two things. The software finds what it, what it, you know, 98% what it's likely to be and adding any other information just creates confusion. So I understand that if the software can't narrow it down, it ought to present all the possibilities, right? But if there's something that the software concludes is the obvious answer based on everything it's doing, it shouldn't fabricate, uh, 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 it shouldn't create um, uh, other possibilities just to make the doctor confused or make the doctor think about what the right answer is. So so that limitation um, isn't, isn't in the statute either. Um, and then the last difference would be uh, time, criticali time criticality. And what FDA is saying is if it's time critical, it can't be exempt. If it produces time critical recommendations, it can't be exempt. Well, that's not what the statute says. What the statute says is the user, the physician, the clinician has to be able to understand and evaluate the recommendation to see if they agree with it, okay? Now, there are some recommendations that are so simple that a physician might be quite quickly able to determine whether that recommendation really makes sense or doesn't make sense. Um, but it isn't a blanket if it's in a time critical circumstance, like in an emergency room. You know, if you read the FDA thing, literally, you wouldn't be able to use CDS in an emergency room because, because time is always important. It's in the name of the department, right? Emergency room. Um, it, it'd be hard to fit this software into any emergency room application. But I think the correct reading of the law is so long as it's simple enough as long as it's transparent enough that the doctor can evaluate it in the time that the doctor has available, whatever time that might be, it's okay. So those are just four examples of where um, I think they went too far and they added their own limitations that weren't found in the statute. Now I'll also add um, a, a, another lawyer, actually a law professor at the University of Florida who has both a uh, an appointment in the law school and the engineering school. She's a, a PhD as well as a lawyer. Um, has filed a citizen's petition more recently than the one that I filed. And she takes a different approach uh, to the same end of saying that the, that the document ought to be um, uh, uh, revoked and, and completely redone. Her argument is that it impinges on the doctor's First Amendment rights. Because really what CDS is all about is, is the evaluation and use of information to analyze something. And, you know, a doctor can consult books, a doctor can consult web pages, a doctor can consult lots of different sources for information, and then takes it, distills it into his or her advice and delivers it to the, um, to the patient. Um, and, 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 and her argument is that FDA doesn't have the right to limit the sources that they consult for that information in deciding what to say uh, to the patient. And it's a it's a brilliant legal argument. I just I have to confess, I didn't think about it um, myself, but, but, um, but she presented that as an additional objection um, uh, to it. And, it. and it leads you to the same place, which is that FDA um, exceeded its authority in, in clamping down on CDS and they need to, they need to take a step backward. So I wanted to go two ways actually after your answer. So let's try one and then the other. 
So just as a matter of practice, I mean, doctors will use Google search and basic things like this, right? right. Is Google search regulated as clinical decision support? I mean, it's possible to do, right? They learn whatever they learn. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a good question. I think in the case of Google, what Google would say is it's a general purpose information search. They don't Google doesn't make medical claims about searching where CDS make medical claims. They say use this to help you diagnose cancer or use this to help you make this decision where Google doesn't do that. So there's a point in the middle where you're doing sort of basic search, but it has medical implications. Um, and I've got clients right now who are fighting with FDA over whether their product is regulated because they're, they're focused search. They're doing medical search, but it's still just search, but it's of a medical corpus. And um, so it's a real problem. FDA has muddied the waters as to whether focused search on medical is regulated or not regulated. They appear to view it as regulated. So for my students who are new to a lot of this, can you just help us figure out the line between clinical decision support and the device? Like how, when do you cross that line? Recommendations, support, diagnosis, device? What what happens when you have a tool that sort of computer-aided diagnosis type tools like in radiology? Like... So all of those would potentially be regulated because the definition of a medical device is very broad in the statute, which has been around since 1976. It's anything used in the cure, mitigation, treatment of disease uh, in man or animal. And people say, well, diagnosis. Diagnosis, for example, means that you use information to arrive at a diagnostic result, which is true. But FDA has for decades interpreted diagnosis more broadly to include uh, things like monitoring, um, evaluating uh, uh, new information for a patient who has been diagnosed, mm -hmm. screening, which is not diagnosis, right? Screening is identifying from an asymptomatic population, those who might have the disease, but then you need to do a further diagnostic test. But screening has been regulated by FDA for decades. So really, FDA takes the position that any tool we can get, talk about what tool means, but any tool used for arriving at a decision about diagnosis or treatment, even an aid in diagnosis or treatment, um, can be a regulated medical device. What the 2016 legislation said was, for CDS, we're going to say it's not a medical device as long as the user is a physician, or excuse me, healthcare professional. And, and number two, that the basis for the recommendation um, uh, can be reviewed by the user so that they can arrive at their own decision. The idea was, and, and our, our coalition came up with the idea, I have to confess, but the idea was if it's a black box that gives you an output and it's a take it or leave it output, you got to believe it or not believe it, but you can't test it, you can't evaluate it, then it's a widget and it ought to be FDA regulated. If it's just information that's being analyzed and the, and the basis for the analysis is being presented to you, so you can sit there in your medical professional judgment and arrive at your own conclusion, it's the practice of medicine and it shouldn't be regulated. So really CDS hinges more on whether it's a black box, take it or leave it, you can't evaluate the basis, or whether it's fully explained and you can evaluate it on your own and reach your own conclusion. That's really the dichotomy when it comes to CDS. Thank you. So let's move to a related topic. Uh, I was very interested in an article you wrote about 
the issues related to physicians and medical schools and hospitals creating their own tools to improve care locally and where the lines are with that. Like if, if my colleague next door, literally here, who works in emergency medicine is developing clinical research support to help his own practice, what what are what is what are his legal issues here? Is he okay to do this? And you go through your article and explain where the lines are and what coming up. But if you can just summarize that for the students, it would be very helpful. Sure. Sure. So just to give a little bit of context, um, FDA's power to regulate is based on uh, interstate commerce. They regulate widgets. They regulate things that move from here to there. Um, and and that's been their role for decades, for almost 100 years. Um, the question is whether an item is in interstate commerce, moving you know, in commerce, or whether it's part of the practice of medicine. The practice of medicine is not federally regulated. The practice of medicine is regulated by state boards of medicine, and it's been that way since the Constitution was written. And the idea is that there are things that should be reserved to the states to regulate because being sort of closer to the citizens, um, they can do a, a more effective job. And for centuries, we've, we've felt as though medicine is part art and science. And so local variation is okay. Um, people are treated in Wyoming very differently than they're treated in Indiana. And, and we find that okay. And, and so we let Indiana regulate, regulators regulate uh, what happens in their state and Wyoming regulate what happens in their state. Software sort of can fall in the middle of those. Is it the practice of medicine? Because it's developed by physicians for their own use on their own patients. Or is it more similar to a widget that is in commerce that is being sold to others? Now, those are the two extremes, and it's easy to sort of articulate those two extremes, and, and how you divide the middle uh, isn't very easy, and FDA hasn't given much guidance in that, in that area. But, you know, as a, as a general rule of thumb, if a state board, if you, if you believe the State Board of Medicine would have no trouble regulating what you're doing, that's a very good argument for why FDA should stay away from it. So if a doctor writes code create a program to use with his or her own patients, there's very little risk that FDA will, will regulate that. That's, that's the practice of medicine. He's literally doing it himself or herself and, and treating his or her own patients. Will you expand that to a group of 10 physicians? And if one doctor does it, but he shares it with the other 10, FDA still seems to say, okay, that's still fine. But we've gotten to this you know, area of corporate medicine where we have these huge institutions that cross many states and have thousands of doctors. And there might be doctors involved in the development, but most of the development is being done by people who don't have MD after their name. They're being done by, by software developers, by machine learning experts, by all sorts of other things. And the physicians are really just there to sort of be the voice of the customer, just like they might for a, a commercial vendor. I mean, if you're Medtronic or whoever, you still talk to doctors. You say, doctor, how do you want this, this monkey wrench to work? Do you, how, you know, they go and they ask for input from users all the time. So simply asking doctors for input isn't enough, in my opinion, um, to make it part of the practice of medicine. So the doctors really have to be involved deeply involved in the development of the product and the the release of the product has to be just within that doctor's domain. But I know 
based on what I've just said, you could come up with all sorts of scenarios. If you're a, a huge multi-state hospital, how you interpret that? And that's a great open question. And the fact that it's not sold outside the system is not sufficient to. Typically not. Um, certainly if a, if a healthcare institution sold the product outside of the company, that would be strong evidence that, that they're, that they're commercializing the product. The more difficult question is when you have a lot of different entities in a, in a single family of entities. And it's very common in healthcare, for example, to have the doctors in a medical group because of the corporate practice of medicine, have the doctors over here in a medical group, have a different institution, you know, that owns the physical hospital and, and rents the beds. And so you have lots of different entities. And so that's where it can get complicated as to whether it's being sort of commercialized, being used outside of a physician group practice. The other aspect is when it starts to cross state lines, because the whole premise of the state regulation of the practice of medicine is that it's regulating what happens within the confines of the state. And when these activities start to span across state lines, that creates another headache. So the other questions we, I had here is, let's stay a little bit out of the direct medical practice. So other entities are beginning to use this sort of software tools, AI tools in let's say quasi-health relationships. So take insurance companies for using tools to approve or deny claims. What, what is their status? They are outside the FDA's rules, but what, what are they bound by here? So insurance companies are generally not regulated by FDA because they're not deciding whether the patient gets care, they argue. They're deciding whether they pay for the care the patient gets. And if a doctor believes that a patient should have care and insurance doesn't cover it, the patient, the, the doctor can still give them the care, they just won't get paid. Or they can do it on a payment plan or any number of things. Mm -hmm. So the, the insurance companies say, we don't control whether a person actually gets care, we control whether we pay for it, which makes sense. There are a whole slew of other laws, though, that apply to those organizations that are sort of born out of civil rights and, and a number of different statutes that say, for example, that you can't discriminate um, against certain groups when deciding, for example, who gets health care. And so a lot of those algorithms um, could be susceptible of challenge on the basis of bias against one particular group or just unfairness. It's, it's based on a contract, right? You, you have a contract with an insurer that it will pay under certain terms of the contract. And if in effect, they're arbitrarily denying claims, you would say that's not in accordance with the contract and therefore can be challenged. So there's a lot of legal challenges to software used by a, an insurer to make decisions about what particular procedures get covered. But you're right, it's not an FDA issue. Okay. Thank you. I think that sums up what I had to ask. I don't know if there's anything else we left out of other issues that people need to be aware of from the legal world in this area. Yeah. Well, in that same vein, you know, the, the current trend with FDA, with devices that it regulates, is to look at things like the potential for bias. It's been a constant discussion all this year, particularly with generative AI, because generative AI is really difficult to evaluate for bias because the output might be text, it might be an image, it might be any number of things. And, you know, it's not binary, so you can't sort of do the easy 
um, uh, uh, validity evaluation. Is it is it accurate or not accurate um, for each of the demographic groups? So it creates a tremendous intellectual challenge to evaluate it. But FDA's basic stand is that algorithms cannot be biased because bias in clinical decision-making is a safety and effectiveness issue. So for example, let's say a piece of software is 99.9% .9 accurate when used with white males, but 70% accurate when used with black females. That's discrimination. It, it's, we're not applying a civil rights law. We're applying the Federal Food Drug Cosmetic Act and saying for that black woman, it is not safe and effective. 70% accuracy is not enough for that tool to be to be used on those patients, on, on, on black women, and therefore you have a safety and effectiveness issue and FDA um, uh, could reject it on that basis. Or they could actually approve it only for use on white males and not for black women, which would create enormous problems, I assume, for the company to have a to have a uh, that limitation in their approval. But it's at least conceptually possible that, that could happen. But that's that's the current issue really is how do we evaluate these things for accuracy across different populations? And it doesn't have to be just race or sex. There's so many different ways that that um, that medical technology uh, decision making can be biased. And if it's unsafe for any definable subgroup, uh, you have a problem. So for those things that do get regulated, um, there are there are some challenges that we need to overcome. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.